Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today I have with us a seasoned, super smart, super experienced guy uh, who pretty much has done most asset classes. So a wealth, a wealth of knowledge uh, and hard fought experience. He is the chairman and founder of Wharton Equity Partners. And welcome back to Peter Lewis. Peter, welcome back to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. I always love talking to you. Yeah, you as well. And uh, like we said, it's been a couple of years, which I cannot believe. And Lord knows the world has changed since then. It is now uh, mid-October of uh, 23 and can't even believe what's going on in the world right now. So when you and I spoke last, you know, you were doing some really, really, really interesting things in the industrial space. I don't know if the term adaptive reuse even applies. I, I know that that's kind of a cliche, but you were basically, you were buying warehouses and redeveloping them and doing some very creative, interesting mm-hmm. things. So maybe, uh, maybe, maybe though, Peter, before we go into bringing it all the way up to present for the audience sake, people didn't hear this two years ago, the Peter Lewis background and what got you to where you are now? Well, I started the firm, Roger, 35 years ago. And it was, um, it was just something that I, I felt I needed to do. I worked on Wall Street. I was in my late 20s. And I, um, I just sensed that I, I really didn't want to have a boss. Uh, and it took some nerve to do it because I was making a bunch of money. I had graduated business school and I was on a career path. And I just um, decided to go out and, and try it on my own. And started my career as a residential developer for sale housing in the tri-state area. I had no knowledge of residential development. I was, a, I was an accounting finance major in, in Columbia and then and previously at Wharton. But I found my way into that business into the first 15 years of my career. I was out on the, on the, the site yelling at the subs, building houses, selling them. And uh, I, was, I was in the dirt. Uh, and I look back very fondly on those days because it really gave me a true understanding of A, how to run a business and B, what construction was all about and all the agony that goes with it. Supplies, supplies don't show up. They show up wrong. Installations are wrong. You know, and and all this, all this kind of uh, helped me shape my career. Uh, and then from there, I started moving into self storage. And then we ran a, an opportunity fund. And then I started buying multifamily in the 2011-12 era before everyone else was really digging in. I was buying Southeast Value Add Multi, and we bought a lot of it during that time. And um, wound up selling all that in around 2016-17. And then started moving into industrial. And, and I think the common thread as I look back now in my 35 years is something moves me that, that, that propels me into a new direction. I don't stay static. I'm always thinking about where, where are things going? Because by human nature, what happens in our business and, and a lot of businesses, is people kind of jump on the bandwagon and follow the herd. And as the machine starts revving up and almost too late into the cycle, everyone's jumping into it. And at that point where I try to pivot to something else, because you, you got to kind of, you got to kind of know where things are going ahead of everyone else. I think if you want to make um, 
kind of um, you know, outsized returns. And we've been very successful at doing that. We still are very big bulls on industrial, which we'll talk a little bit about, Roger. And, and the reason is because of the huge macro tailwinds behind it. And it's changing every day. It's not just e-commerce. Technology is playing a massive role in, in reshaping that business. Um, and, and then we believe in other um, asset classes right now, built rent, specifically very interested in that, again, driven by big demographic changes. Uh, and then we're very, very interested in an area called cold storage. So we can touch on those today. And, and separate from that, we have a venture capital business where we invest in, um, we use our skills and kind of deciphering companies that have big growth potential. Well, I mean, just listening to that progression, it almost seems like you know, you just have a crystal ball and obviously nobody does, but I mean, like your timing, just impeccable. Now, you know, you sold off your, your multifamily in 16, 17. Did, did you say Southeast value add? Is that what I heard you say? Uh-huh. And, and nobody could predict it then, I don't think rationally that it would continue to have the run that it did. Uh, largely attributed to just, you know, interest rates continuing to go down and down and down. So in my mind, what brilliant mm -hmm. timing. Uh, on the industrial side of things, and, and then also we could talk about build to rent and cold storage, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You said that more than just e-commerce, and I guess, but to, to take a half step back, all I know is what I know from who I talk to and what I read. I, I'm not an operator, so I don't have the experience you have. But uh, what I have read, and it, it may or may not apply to what you do, probably doesn't, but I'll ask it anyway, is that we kind of got Amazon ended up acquiring, you know, something like 30 million. I could be wrong, but I think that's the number 30 million square feet that it's now trying to either get rid of or uh, sublease in that it's gotten too built out. So I guess the question is, I guess, compared to a couple of years ago when we were still very in a COVID economy, how does industrial compare today than it did two years ago? Industrial is not immune to over-exuberance, just like every other asset class and, and, every, and everything else that seems hot at the moment, people start pouring into it. So I think it fell prey to that. But let's not, let's not delude ourselves to think that e-commerce is slowing down. What Amazon does and why they've been so successful is they have like a scorched earth policy. They, they go out and they consume as much as they can of, of a certain strategy. They'll, they'll risk overshooting and then retreating versus being short. So what they did during this last five years is they tied up an infinite amount of real estate around the big cities and other locations. And they basically built a fortress as far as last mile distribution that no one else can replicate. Their goal is to be able to get goods, no matter where you live in the United States, surely within the same day, but ideally within a few hours for everybody. So don't, don't look at Amazon as being the bellwether for the health of the industry. I think, I think what's happened here, and this happens all the time with developers. Developers, if they're given the money, they're going to build. And there's no restraints to that. So when zero interest rates were out there and you have lenders and, and other guys who were getting greedy, they just built. So we're in a situation now where there's more, more properties out there that need to be filled than there are tenants. And combine that with the slowing economy. Target and these other guys are not immune to basically in the boardroom saying, let's wait a minute here. These are big capital expenditures. Let's slow down. But again, this is not indicative of what's going to happen in the long run. 
And the other thing I want to say, and this is why I love this business and, and, and I love contrarian thinking, is right now everyone's parroting the same thing you are, which is the business is over or slowing. It will never really recover. I'm not saying you're saying that to that extreme. And they're missing the big picture, which is there's going to be more and more goods consumed online and you're going to need more and more industrial space. And the problem you're going to have going forward is that it's getting harder and harder to build these because the, the amount of opposition is becoming almost insurmountable. People today can organize a, um, an opposition group overnight with a Facebook page. Uh, and you're seeing more and more of this happen in the markets you want to be in. So we're going to see as we get through this period of time when the, when the product gets absorbed, that demand for e-commerce is going to continue to go. And, and the, the big tenants are not going to have the ability to get big space because those buildings are not going to be able to be built anymore. So we, we, it will take some time, 25, 26, 27, probably in that vicinity is when you'll start seeing a pickup again in, in the big boxes. But let's not, let's not look at industrial as multi-segmented. I mean, it's only a third of it is, is uh, e-commerce. The balance is really the bread and butter of, of, of industrial. And let me, let me be clear about something. The place that I like the most is not e-commerce. The place I like the most is going to be light, light assembly. Uh, and what's happening in the United States with EV plants and battery plants and, you know, this new wave of technology that's creating a whole new, um, Set of companies that that didn't exist before, uh, and these are these are being fueled by by government incentives, for example, and whether it's state, federal, or local. So, what's happening is a new set of buildings, industrial buildings, are being spawned to service these huge plants, right? So, like let's say down in um, Charleston, you have you have some massive plants going. Volvo has a plant. Uh, you have in in Greenville, you have BMW. All these um, places require suppliers, consultants, light assembly, so they create a whole ecosystem. And, and those users require space and buildings. That didn't exist five years ago, seven years ago, right? So when you think about industrial, the forward-thinking guys are thinking about where is the world going? Yes, the e-commerce is going to be with us, and again, it's going to ramp back up in a few years from now. But today, the amount of space that's required uh, to feed this, new age of companies is booming. Um, so we have a combination of that. And then we have a combination of the tried and true infill industrial, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. The markets are very tight. You can't build in those markets. What's happening is the local plumbing supply house is getting squeezed out by another company that may now have a bigger online presence. And so they're getting into the need for space and industrial. Uh, so we have all these um, these pressures that are going to continue to cause rents to rise, space to be demanded. Uh, so let everyone focus on the the perception that uh, big boxes, um, you know, are starting the doom of this industry. And I'm going to continue to do what I do, which is buy the stuff that I really like. What's your take on uh, light industrial? Is that is that is that somewhere where you play or not as much? Yeah. Of course, I think today the best product of all today is what's called flex, which is let's say 10% office and the balance is, is warehouse. Maybe the warehouse is 28 to 30 foot too high, uh, 32 foot high in, in ceiling heights versus the bigger e-commerce buildings, which are 36 to 40 feet high. And these, these, are, these are places where businesses conduct business. It, they're not just sitting there and storing goods. 
they're they're creating product. They're, they're importing from Mexico now, which has become a big player, uh, in, as you can imagine, with nearshoring. And we're seeing this we're seeing this all over the place. It's happening at lightning speed. So flex and slash light industrial is the product of the future. These buildings are going to require more power. They're going to have electric charging stations. They're going to have solar on the roof. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be certain things that they're going to have that the older generation buildings don't have. And it's an exciting uh, evolution in the business. What I'm recalling from our prior conversation is how animated you are and how uh, how much conviction you have about what you're doing. And it's refreshing and it just brings a smile to my face. I, I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, so you're welcome. Is there going to be, you know, so like, as you could imagine, so this is a, a, a real estate show. And so just by virtue mm -hmm. of that, I would have to say the bulk of the people I interview is multifamily because that's like the, the most, it employs the most amount of people, right? So you know what's kind of heading, what's coming down over the next couple of years in that industry. Mm -hmm. in, in, in Flex Industrial, do you have any, is any of that same dynamic or when, will any of that dynamic apply specifically around, you know, uh, really have super heavy leveraged, you know, bridge debt? Will, will there be any distress in, in flex industrial or not? I think that there's going to be distress in every single real estate asset class where, where people put on floating rate debt over the last few years and either their interest rate cap is expiring uh, you know, or, the, or their debt's maturing. It's just, it's just a structural change. I don't care what asset class it is. However, you're going to see more likely solutions in industrial than you will in office, for example. So there is, industrial is still a very favored asset class. So lenders may be less inclined to take the property back because they know that the borrower will likely be able to figure it out. You know, whereas office is no hope. So, I, I think that there's going to be some friction, but I don't think it's going to be a complete uh, massacre for sure. And I think it's going to be a shallow issue, but I, but obviously the longer the rates are held where they are, the more catastrophic it could be. But I don't, I, I think, I think multi and industrial are both going to be the least hurt. I, I, I think industrial probably even less so than multi. The leverage in multi got very high. Uh, between the liberal financing, uh, generally speaking, of the agencies, and then you saw a lot of prep being deployed. Industrial, you don't have the agencies. You have, you're dealing with commercial banks, generally speaking, maybe some debt funds here and there. They're pretty tough in how they, in how they underwrite. They didn't go past 65%, most of them. Uh, and so, so you have a little less of that leverage in, in industrial than you might in multifamily. Uh, and and, um, and also, because you Usually speaking, um, let's say the debt funds in particular, they generally want to try to work it out with you, I think. And so we're starting to see some of that where they're pushing it out a little further as far as expiration. Maybe there, maybe there's some penalties they're imposing, but that, that come into play later on. So, uh, but let's not, let's not pretend that this is just going to be something that this particular area or any area is going to be immune to, um, you know, decay, if you will. Interest rates are, are have a profound effect. And, and, and based on my experience of 35 years, usually it takes about a year or so before you start really seeing the effects of, of interest rates. During the early stages, it's like the stages of grief, you know, it's kind of, 
oh, look at that, these rates are high. And then they start looking at their interest reserves and they see them dwindling faster than they thought. And then they, they get a letter from the lender and then they fight the lender. And then, you know, so this is, this is a process that occurs. And, we're, and I would say somewhere in the first quarter of next year, you're going to start seeing that temperature rise pretty significantly. Uh, where there's going to be a lot of activity around how do we find solutions to debt that's maturing, interest rate caps that are maturing. So we're, we're headed there. There's no question about it. And I, and I don't see the Fed, I don't think the Fed has much empathy, frankly, for commercial real estate. So I don't think they're going to acquiesce and drop rates because of, you know, poor little developer. In terms of what you're doing now, uh, as it pertains to industrial, are you redeveloping um, things that warehouse into? I'm asking this question the wrong way. Are you are you are you buying existing mm-hmm. assets as they are and this going to continue running them, or are you are you changing the model and use for them and redeveloping them? I'm not really redeveloping them. We did do a bunch of redevelopment, and I still like that game. If I can find a building that I can turn into a good industrial building, I'm going to do that. But, but I'm not. I'm not going to take it the other way. You know, take industrial to something else. I, I think more. The more apt kind of response here is, we do love buildings that may have been um, mismanaged, neglected, uh, and we love it re-envisioning and making these buildings better to serve as good industrial buildings. But but we're not reinventing the buildings into something that, you know, space age per se. So I like that right now, my, my gut's telling me that the way to play the game is buy bread and butter, good real estate in very, very, very strong locations. So I, I deem a strong location with a lot of population, high barriers to entry um, due to uh, lack of land uh, and, and just, Try to find that kind of real estate, irrespective of what interest rates are doing and what the world is doing. Real estate that you really believe in your belly is, is something you want to own for a long time. Everyone's getting caught up right now, and I understand why, in the effect the interest rates are having on your ability to buy. And the real players, and I don't know if I put myself in that category necessarily, I'm not, I'm not a John Gray Blackstone, but if you listen to Blackstone and some of these others, they're basically saying we buy good real estate and we, we, we try to not focus on the cycles, um, whether they're capital markets or, or others, because uh, we think about things in the longer term. So I, I think that we're going to see some good real estate free up and that's when we want to buy. And maybe it means upfront a little less return, but I think over the long term, real estate is proven, good real estate is proven. It will outperform most asset classes pretty significantly. So this is a time to be patient, in my opinion, and, and try to go after properties you really want to own. You know, what happens when you're late in this, a frothy cycle is all of a sudden, oh, uh, underwriting standards drop down a little bit. Oh, rents will continue to run at 5% a year. Let's underwrite that. Or cap rates will be 100 basis points lower than what we're buying it for. Let's underwrite that. And you, you could turn any transaction into a 20 or 30% IRR. The, the guys who have been around realize that, that these assumptions are, are things that you just thrown to a computer. What you really need to do is take a step back and say, what's the, what's the demand? What's the, what's the risk of supply? You know, all, all the basic fundamental real estate questions that you need to ask, that's what you focus on. Not, not fictional things that, that you need to thread the needle on to get, it, to get a return, if I'm making any sense. You know, this, we're going back to basics, I guess, is the bottom line. And I think, and I know we're doing this, 
were looking to buy was less leveraged, maybe in some instances by all cash, uh, and, and just try to be thoughtful investors in a world that's upside down. That's the way you do it. It's very hard to do. Most people can't do it. Most people over the last 10 years got, got addicted to 0% interest rates and free money. We're, that world is over. We will not see that again. I don't even know if we'll see it in my career ever again. All right, we're going to be in a, we're going to be in a, in a negative um, or somewhat positive leverage market. So cap rates and debt, cost of debt, maybe being neck and neck with each other for an extended period of time. Peter, so that's you. So you just need to buy good real estate. Peter, you speak like um, the uh, richest and other most successful and oldest real estate people I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I guess over thirty, you know, at this stage of life, hopefully, I have something that I can, I can <laughs> say that's worthwhile. But you, when you were younger, you know, you'd look at people who are my vintage and say, "What does he know?" Right? <laughs> um, and then when you turn that age, you sit there and say, "Listen, guys, this is how it is." We'll, we'll I guess we'll know in the next year or so whether my uh, my discussion today proved proved true. If I'm a betting man, I say everything, every word you said comes true. No, I'm lying. It's amusing to me, but I, I understand. I mean, I understand it a trillion percent. It's just too, like you said, it's hard. It's too easy to chase yield. And most people yeah. need, most people need yield. So it's yeah. just hard mm -hmm. to be disciplined when you need the yield. It's too easy to compromise and, and kind of guilt mm -hmm. the you know, and, and be unrealistic because you people are greedy because they, you know, so it's people like you that That's have been right. owned and, you know, you, you've, you've seen some bad mm -hmm. movies and, you know, you're more established. Yeah. to have that. Yeah. A dangerous game right now, Roger, which a lot of people playing in multi and in industrial and, and the other asset classes is they're buying with what's called negative leverage. So the debt, the, the, the cost of debt is higher than the cap rate. And which means to some degree, you could be cash flow neutral or cash flow negative. And you're hoping that rents are going to increase fast enough so that you can jump over that into positive territory. That's a very dangerous game. I don't like transactions that are binary. In other words, if, if in fact, rates, your rental rates don't jump fast enough, you're, you're in deep poo poo, right? I don't, I don't want to be playing that game because I, I don't know, I don't have enough conviction of where the economy is going. So you really, again, it gets back to the same thing. What, what are the assets that are going to withstand the test of time and, and try to structure them in such a manner where you have the broadest possibility of winning. And, and right now today, that's going to be with less leverage. And by the way, if, with, with someone who has the ability to do this, and I'm not saying this is easy, but if I, if I were going out and I wanted to put a bunch of friends together to buy something, and let's say it costs $2 million, right, a, a little brownstone in Harlem, I'd be going buying it all cash. You, you could go to sellers today, and it's coming more and more where you say to the seller, I will buy this thing without any debt, so you know I'm closing, but I'm not paying the price that you want. I'm going to pay this price with the X minus. Do you want to rely on a guy who has to go out to a bank and get debt? Or do you want someone like me who's, who's going to show you a bank account that has the money? And you're going to see more and more sellers acquiesce and take the guy who's going to show them the money because they may have something that's lurking, such as an interest rate tap coming due, 
where they can't afford to take the chance that the person's not going to close. Right? So they may have a pressure hanging over their head where they would have liked to have sold for X. They'll take X minus and still make some money and go home and live another day. And we're seeing more and more of that coming. Have you or do you raise funds and or how do you have all the cash or, you know, just how, how do you make that work? Well, we've used a combination of high net worth money over the years. We have we have a fund right now, uh, which is which is a modest sized fund. I'm, I'm, and then we have joint ventures, some of them programmatic with institutions, large institutions, Carlisle, Starwood, the like. Uh, I, I, my mission right now is as, as we look at the world and pursuant to what I've been talking about today is we're on a mission to find capital, significant capital that will allow us to buy properties all cash. And, and then within the next couple of years, at some point, interest rates come down. They have to come down because the United States can't service the debt. If nothing else, it's going to be a political factor that's going to push rates down. It will also be because the economy is going to slow, et cetera. So then at that time, when the world is a little bit more friendly from a rate standpoint, then I'll finance, pull out some money and, and, and you know, be into a new world of ownership. But it, it doesn't make any sense to me right now to be putting on this kind of high interest rate debt, particularly when some of this debt, if you is, is you locked in for 18 months or two years, you can't prepay it without a huge penalty. And you, you might look pretty silly locking in this rate in 12 months from now. So, uh, and, and I'm also now talking to friends and other high net worth guys about this strategy as well. By the way, I mean, we've been, as I mentioned, we're focused on industrial and that's a big, uh, huge area. But I do think there's going to be interesting opportunities along with the same theory here with, with, with triple net lease properties where you'll be able to go to sellers who have some kind of pressure and they, they're going to sell these things in 7% plus cap rate range. It's not so terrible if you own an asset with no, with no debt on it and let's assume it's a decent credit uh, and sit there for a few years and, and clip coupons. So this is, this, is not, this is the time now to not take too much risk. Let the world kind of unfold underneath you and buy stuff you can sleep at night with. That's that's what you want to be doing. The the the, the era of quick money is over. Uh, there's going to always be an aberration, but generally speaking, and that's a hard pill for people to swallow because they got used to just making lots of money quickly. What did I'm going to wind back about 15 minutes or so? You like buying mm -hmm. industrial if it's uh, poorly managed. And there's our value mm -hmm. add uh, that's uh, related to that. What are what are uh, mismanagements in industrial? One of the first things I look for is is just buildings that look ugly, that can be fixed up. Painting a building as silly as something like that. We're very big on signage. We're very big on landscaping. We're very big on lighting. So inside the buildings and outside the buildings, but you know, lighting is important. But inside the building converting to LED lights uh, when, when they may not be using those, for example, brightens up the space. So if you're showing it, it has a different feeling than when you're walking to something which is dingy, right? We'll look at the floors, we'll polish the floors. I'm always thinking about the visual appearance of the space. Obviously, you wanna make sure there's ample parking and the parking lots look clean. Maybe you need to pave the parking. So it's really, some of this is cosmetic. And then you need to look at things like roof. Is the roof uh, out of warranty? Is it a mess? Uh, you got to factor all these into your purchase because those are monies that you're spending. 
but the other guy may not, may not have been willing to spend that money. So when you have, so when a tenant, new tenant comes and sees a bright new painted building with, with you know, new blacktop and a, and a well-lit space uh, and a new roof with a 20 year warranty, some guys are not willing to make that gamble to put that kind of investment into a building. And I think that's nearsighted. And by the way, in a market where you really want to be protective and try to ensure that you stay leased or, you know, you have to do that. You have to, because guys are going to be soon. If, if the world continues to be a little choppy, you're going to see landlords potentially start giving some free rents. I mean, I've been there before. Uh, you're going to see rents maybe stabilizing or going down a little bit. So the game's going to get more and more competitive for a period of time, potentially, if the world slows down. And it's going to be the properties that look the best. And, and also where you have landlords that are considerate, uh, nice people. Because you also, that goes a long way in business. You know, it, it, yes, we're, we're all trying to conduct business, but you also want to be, um, you want to be user-friendly. Wow. You can't teach that. You know that you really need to, and, and by the way, Roger, when the world is fantastic and it was speeding along like it was before, no one really had to be user friendly because the tenants would take it or leave it or at least to the next guy. There's a whole generation out there that's going to learn very quickly what it means to be a real landlord. And I don't think, I don't think many of them understand what that means. I don't know if anybody's ever said that on this show and uh, interesting. Do you have a size building that you like a minimum size of a building or a minimum size of a deal that you'll get involved with? I would say in our backyard, and that's kind of tri-state area, um, you know, $15 million, one five plus would be kind of where we'd like to play. There's no maximum. If it's right next door to another building, maybe we'd go down lower. But it, there's just, when you really look at the economies of scale of owning, for us at least at this point, given the size of our organization, uh, it, it just, doesn't make sense to go much smaller than that. Got it. But, uh, you know, but for young people starting out, let me just say that there is absolutely nothing wrong with buying a 25,000 square foot building, you know, for, for $5 million or less, $5 million or, or, I love that idea. If you're young and you, then you're very, you know, tightly, um, you don't have a lot of overhead and you're looking to get started. Those little buildings with maybe 5,000, 2,500 square foot tenants are fantastic. They're labor intensive. But they're a great way to start learning how to be in the industrial business. And if you get, if you're in the right spot, they will always stay leased. So just because my view is a little bigger, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the only, only way to do this. Do you have a uh, preference for number of tenants in a building? Do you do any uh, single tenant or would you prefer more tenants? What's your thinking along that, those lines? It's fantastic to be able to buy a building that's vacant, fix it up and get a credit tenant and finance out your money or, or, or whatever, right? I mean, that's, that's a great play if you sign a real 10-year lease or something. But I think the, the, pro, the product that's, that's really in big demand right now from investors and also from users is the smaller buildings that are demisable. So you can go down to even 2,500 square feet. I mean, I, ideally it, it, it's a little small, but... 10,000, 15, 25,000 is, is kind of like where the action is today. Under 100,000 is where most of the activity is with leasing today. So that's, that's kind of like where we like to play right now. We could buy a big building. I mean, we are, we're building a huge park out in um, Mesa, Arizona. That's 1.5 million square feet. But we have a lot of 25,000 square foot users in those buildings. 
And that's where the activity is. And so I think when the world is a little topsy-turvy, and also I just think going forward, my gut's telling me going forward, Roger, that this asset class is going to take a lot of the office tenants. Uh, and, 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 and so you're going to, they're going to become quasi-office. So they're going to satisfy the office need, smaller office space, but they're going to have, they're going to have distribution in the back or stores in the back. Whereas those guys may have been in the building before office building and they had a separate little warehouse. I think you're going to see those things combined. It'll be more efficient for them. And people don't really even want to be in office buildings anymore. You know, they, they want to be in a single story building and, you know, and hang out. So I, I really like this multi-tenant uh, category and I love there's just like markets like Tampa and, and there's just some places where you can't build any more of this. You just can't. That's the places you want to play. Big, like Tampa is a fascinating market because you got a lot of activity going on there. There was just an announcement that Heinz is building a new stadium. Uh, it, it's a billion dollar project, but, but this is in a different, you know, you have, you have the waterfront in Tampa being rebuilt by a guy named Bennett. Uh, you, you know, you have all these things going on. I'm using Tampa as an example. Uh, and, and so you're going to have a lot of pressure, more consumers moving into the market, more businesses being formed, and, and, and yet you only have a finite amount of industrial space. I mean, it's just pure supply and demand. So, and by the way, a lot of those buildings are 1970s, 1980s, where the landlord did nothing forever, right? And so those are the kind of places, those are the kind of buildings today that you look at and you say, I can, I can make these buildings look better. And, and I can, I can play into the, into the demographics that are going on in this market and, and just make sure that you capitalize it properly and sit back and enjoy it because the ride will be a good one. Once we get through this period, the ride from there on out is going to be very strong. This is not a time to be reaching for tertiary markets where there may be an appearance of an 8% cap rate. I think the converse is really strategy right now, which is, Try to buy real estate you really want that you couldn't you couldn't buy the last few years, even if it means it's a six or five and a half cap. You know, don't chase as you said earlier, chasing yield. There's a reason why yield is often what it is. There's something with that asset that causes it to be yielding, uh, you know, high rate. It it is very rare today that that something exists out there that no one else sees, and and the, the seller's a fool and he's pricing it so it's a very high cap rate. It's just it's unlikely. I mean, we, you know, you can, we do reimagine buildings and do things that the, the owners don't see. So, so markets like, I don't love the Midwest. I've never liked the Midwest. I don't like the tax policies in the Midwest. I don't like the weather in the Midwest. They're more, they're, it's, it's harder to, um, the costs are higher. You gotta be very careful though today in places like Florida with, with uh, insurance rising like crazy. There's all sorts of minefields out there. That's why I'm saying experience really does help. Or, or if you're younger, asking people who have experience, whether they're vendors or otherwise, and, and, and really do extra, extra work now to make sure that you avoid minefields because you're not going to get the benefit of getting out of your trouble by compressing cap rates or other favorable conditions. You see what I'm saying? Many people were lucky over the last number of years. They made a misstep, but it got covered up because someone came along and paid them more money. So now is the time to be extra vigilant with your diligence, find really good locations, and, and don't be afraid to ask for help if, if you're not that experienced so that you avoil unforeseen mistakes because there's not going to be a lot of room for error.
along all of those lines, what's the uh, environment right now about around pricing uh, in industrial? Yeah, transaction volume is down, and I'm telling you, it's probably eighty percent. Uh-huh. I mean, I can tell by my inbox and the amount of phone calls that we're getting inbound from brokers. So we're in this period that's going to be a low, and I suspect Roger, it's going to it's going to be through the end of the year. Because anyone who's looking to sell and wants to try to close before your end, the, the property's on the market already. Because we're, we're, you know, November 1st will be 60 days to year end. Very hard to close deals in 60 days today. So I think we're going to see a pretty uh, quiet period. And part of that is sellers are still not willing to recognize where they are. And they're hopeful that rates will drop fast, that they'll get that kind of relief. And I think as we move into into next year, and they realize that rates are not going to be dropping that fast, I think they're going to start they're going to start having to come closer to where the pricing should be, uh, and you're going to see buyers inch up a little bit too because they're sitting with a lot of money. So there will be a meeting of the minds as we start moving into the first quarter of next year, with both parties being equally unhappy. What do you envision, this is a broad question, because not just with industrial, but, and you don't have to go asset by asset class, but what kind of distress, and maybe you have to in order to answer the question, you could field it however you feel so inclined, but in the next, you said Q1 of 24, you know, things are going to start shaking loose a little bit. You didn't say that Mm -hmm. term, I'm using it. What, What do you see in the market overall in the next three to six slash 18 months. I mean, what kind of opportunities do you think will be there? You really want to be looking for owners that have some exogenous pressure. So when did they buy the property? What kind of debt did they put on the property? Likely they're going to have an interest rate cap. You know, like you can, you can look and see what the interest rates were at the time of their purchase and what they are now. And you can almost price what kind of pain they're going to feel. Uh, so I think that, that construction projects that are partially built or on the way to being built are going to be places that you really want to take a hard look at. Guys who are doing um, rehab programs uh, in in multi, for example, supply chain issues and other things may have slowed down their progress in doing that. They're not realizing the rents that they they thought they were going to get. Uh, And I think they're going to run into problems here in kind of being short on their, on their debt service and, and some other things. So, so I, I think as a general rule, within each of the asset classes, there's going to be places you want to focus, but it's going to be, it's going to be around the vintage of when these properties were bought, the type of seller you have. Is it an institution? There could be institutions that are looking to sell because their fund life is over and they want to get rid of the asset. Uh, you know, there, could be, um, there could be individuals who have personal guarantees and nothing motivates someone to sell than getting off a guarantee that could hurt them, right? So we're looking for factors that give, create quote unquote forced sellers. And then you wanna be in a position and you wanna make sure you're continuously talking to the brokers and letting them know that you can buy. The second those things appear, let us know right away and we can come in there and solve the problem. Uh, so um, I, I don't think it's really, I mean, again, I, I think the secondary markets, tertiary markets are going to be problems. Uh, some of the overbuilt markets that are that got over overbuilt, because um, you know what happens is when 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 you when you start moving into the tail end of a robust cycle, that's when the greatest level of of optimism exists, 
and then things slow. And unfortunately, just by the nature of development, that property continues to be built and is being delivered at the wrong time. And that's, and that's just the way it works with development. So those properties are vulnerable. You know, the money, the money really, if you look back in real estate, the money that's made is made at the beginning of cycles, not at the end. And I, that's why I think we're going we're gonna to go to a resetting of, of this cycle in the next 24 months that's going to set the stage for the next run. And, and that's when you want to be really in a position to buy your next, you know, make your next big push. Eloquently put. What, what would you say, um, and you've probably already answered this question in, in everything you've said, but I'll ask it anyway. What would you say is your overall arching philosophy when it comes to real estate investing? I have, a, I have experience at this stage, Roger, to no good real estate when I see it. I don't, I, I surely look at models. Our guys run models for me, but I, I basically make my decision up before, before I see a model. I don't really care what our exit cap is, whether it's five and a half or six or five and three quarters. You're never going to get that number anyhow. It's, just, it's, you know, it's, it's fictional. So for me, this has always come down to buying real estate that you just know is good. Uh, and so I think that's the prevailing theme today. More than ever, you got to buy good real estate because you, because things could get tough out there and it's going to be the good real estate that's going to survive and, and thrive. The real estate that's in secondary locations or has, let's say, some inherent flaws with it that other guys were buying beforehand because they were getting bigger yields, I think those are going to be slow in recovering. And I think there's going to be a lot of pain associated with those, which doesn't mean you should go after them, by the way. Uh, so I, I think my overarching philosophy is real estate is a terrific business. Don't be so focused on what's going on in the moment. Be more focused about what the long-term prognosis is for the piece of real estate you're buying and then try to work backwards to figure out how you can buy it. All right. That's, that's the hard part, but that's the place where ultimately, uh, you know, the very famous concept by Warren Buffett is to be fearful. You know, you'd be aggressive when everyone's fearful and, you know, fearful when everyone's aggressive, right? There's, there's, he says it more eloquently. This is the time now to be aggressive potentially on some, on really good real estate, but it's not yet. We've still got a little bit more time before it starts happening. And again, I, I don't see complete blood in the streets. I see a softening, an opportunity to buy. I don't see complete uh, tragedy unfolding here. What, what would you say is the biggest uh, mistake you made? I look back on a transaction I made actually in the multi-space some years ago uh, on some assets we bought in the Midwest, in, in actually in Illinois. Uh, and we didn't we didn't properly gauge the effects of politics in that particular county, uh, and we were we we spent a lot of money looking at real estate taxes. I hired consultants to make sure that we weren't you know properly estimating what they were going to be in the future, and we just misunderstood the fact that these particular counties, because we bought in a couple of counties, it was a large transaction. Uh, they, they kind of skirted the rules, um, and they egregiously raised the, the, uh, real estate taxes, uh, which really hurt us. And, uh, I learned from that. And this goes back to what I said earlier. You can't do too much diligence. Every single stone needs to be looked over today and looked over again. And by the way, real estate taxes is one of those. 
but I think that, and, and so we under, so we underestimated our real estate taxes in that particular transaction. And we really didn't appreciate the toll that the hard winters would have on the assets. Every spring, it was an explore, exploration as to what happened with the curves, what happened with the roofs, what happened, you know, like, so I, I, I think that um, my kind of thing that I learned from that was really, really, really go the extra yard in due diligence. Uh, and fortunately, we were able to get out of that transaction without losing any money and making a few pennies. Uh, my investors were, were happy because it wasn't, wasn't looking too, uh, too outstanding. But for a number of years, I, I, I was not looking too smart. And, and something to learn from that also, which I did during that time, and I, was, I look back proudly on that, is even though the news was not what people had hoped for when we invested originally in the transaction, I made sure that I always told them exactly what was happening. Even though it was bad medicine to swallow, um, one of the things you learn in business, if you're an investor, everyone loves good news, but you've got to be on top of bad news equally as well. And, and it's hard to do because people don't want to hear it sometimes. But if you don't do it, you're, you're deceitful and you're going to lose the trust of the people who, who gave you your money. Uh, and, and that, I think that was the biggest thing. If I had to take anything away from that transaction, that's what I learned the most, which is take, be, be forthright and deal with the consequences of it. And people will understand if you're trying hard. So we're not infallible. None of us are infallible in this business. Uh, what you, what you need to do is learn from it. And there's gonna be a lot of learning coming down the pike here. Learn and then really just absorb that and don't make the same mistake again. Uh, and, and by the way, I, what, one of the major things that spurred that transaction was because of the high yield that I was getting. And it was a HUD transaction. So we had very low cost debt. So we were really making a nice, supposedly making a nice cash on cash. Uh, and that, that got eviscerated with the rising taxes. So that was, that was probably my worst transaction. Mm -hmm. Peter, if somebody wants to learn more, and man, I thank you because I, for one, have learned an extraordinary mm -hmm. amount. And this is one of my podcasts. I will actually listen, re-listen. How does one get a hold of you, find out more? Yeah, they can go to the website, uh, Wharton Equity, and I have a V-card on there. Uh, and they can email me, reach out. We're always looking for interesting ideas. We're very, we're very creative too with folks who, let's assume someone has a transaction maybe too big for them, right? What, what I've done and, and particularly for younger guys who are getting started and say, look, bring us into the deal. We'll make sure that you get recognition as far as participation in the profits, but we'll also, you'll get the opportunity to leverage off of us and, and be part of in the press, your name and, and your company's name as you start building your reputation, which is really important. Uh, and so there's, there's other benefits. Uh, and, and we, we are, I'm a mentor at Columbia Business School and, and, and a lot of ULI and other places. I deal a lot with younger folks. I appreciate what it's like having done it myself to be, be younger and trying to grow up in a business uh, and, and the kind of things that I think could benefit you as, as you're going. So we're very user-friendly. We, we don't screw around with people. Uh, and so no matter how small you are or how big you are, I'm generally pretty accessible, even though I, you know, I am fairly busy. Seems like sometimes the busiest people 
make the most amount of time. Peter, I, I really cannot thank you enough. And I hope to be able to do this uh, with you sometime, uh, maybe a year from now and get, you know, kind of get current and we can figure out what's happened between now and then. Uh, That'd be great. Yeah, I enjoy it. Thank you so much. Sure. We'll talk to you it's soon. It's my pleasure, Roger. I really appreciate the way you hold, hold um, court here. It makes it easy and uh, doing a great job. So thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. <laughs>